The sermon text for today is Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 1786. Listen as I read God's word. No confidence in the flesh. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood, and it's great to be with you here today as we open up God's word. As we do, would you join me in a word of prayer? I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome by distress and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the unwary. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. Lord, this morning we do indeed confess that you have been good to us. You have poured out your abundance on us. You have poured out your grace upon us in so many ways and we express our thankfulness to you. We thank you, Lord, for your word, for the gift that it is, for making yourself known to us, for the presence of your spirit to be with us and to guide us. Lord, we ask that you would help us to 
find rest in you today. Lord, for those who are weary, for those who are tired, for those who are burdened or discouraged, for those who are struggling to keep it together, Lord, we ask that you would be their rest today. Lord, in the midst of the the strivings that we have, the strivings that we, the things we pursue, the things that we uh, do, the ways we pour ourselves out, Lord, we ask that you would help us to find rest from our works. Lord, we look to you today and we ask that you would be near to us and that you right now in this moment would come meet us in a special way. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, one of the things that is true about us as humans is that we are hardwired to achieve. We are hardwired to accomplish things. And I think this is part of why there's a sense of pride and a sense of satisfaction when we create something. That maybe something is a part of a school project. It may be something that you create uh, as a part of your job, a, a product or a service or a solution of some kind. There's a sense of satisfaction in that. It may be something we take up as a hobby that we just become good at, and it's satisfying to be able to create things. I think it's also why uh, we feel a sense of satisfaction and pride when we would maybe accomplish a house project that we never thought we'd be able to. Just a couple weeks ago, I replaced uh, in our kitchen sink the faucet, and some of you may sort of laugh at how uh, accomplished I felt after that, Uh, but I was pretty intimidated because I've never done much plumbing before, and I didn't know what it would take or whatnot, and by the end of it, I felt like a master plumber. Now, I know we have at least a couple of those in our church family who are mocking me inside of their heads right now um, because I'm nowhere near that skill level, but, but there was a sense of accomplishment with being able to do something, to finish something that I wasn't sure I'd be able to do. I think this is why there's a sense of pride and satisfaction when we would maybe win an award of some kind, maybe an academic award, maybe in the context of your workplace, maybe you get a merit raise. Maybe in a sport or an activity you have, there's a sense of accomplishment when you win something. I think this is part of what draws us to the myriad of different tools that promise to help us be more productive, that help us be more organized, that help us be uh, able to accomplish more, to achieve more in less time. All the task uh, softwares, all the, the time management solutions that are out there, we're drawn to those because we desire to achieve. Now, this is, in part, hardwired into the way that God has made us. We are designed by God to be fruitful, the Bible says. We're designed by God as physical human beings who are a part of a physical world, and God has designed us to do things. (laughs) So it is good, it is right that we should feel the sense of satisfaction and the sense of joy and fulfillment when we can accomplish things. And yet, at the same time, I think we all know that there is a shadow side to accomplishment. Maybe some of you are of the child-rearing age, whereas parents, you are coming to realize the all-consuming, hyper-competitive nature of youth sports and how it can seem to, it can ruin your schedule and it can in real ways ruin the lives of your children. Maybe you uh, have felt the feelings of discouragement, maybe even shame when you give something everything you've got and you come up short, you come in second place, you come in third place, you don't even place at all. And it feels like a part of yourself has just died in that moment because you've given so much of yourself to that thing and you didn't accomplish, you didn't achieve. 
There's a shadow side to that. Some experience the shadow side of the cutthroat nature of certain vocations, certain industries that almost demand, that expect you to overwork, that expect you, that demand that you go over and above what you are technically paid for to make sure that you're staying ahead of the competition. There's a shadow side of that. And then there's the spouses and the children that are left behind as parents are giving their lives to career success and things like this. So we're designed to achieve. We are hardwired for accomplishment. And at the same time, there's a shadow side to this. We all know it. The shadow side of achievement and accomplishment extends into the spiritual realm as well. And that's what we read about in this passage that you heard Marjorie read for us just a moment ago. As we explore this passage from the book of Philippians chapter three, what we're gonna see is Paul giving us a warning and an invitation. He gives us both a warning and an invitation. So let's look at Philippians chapter three and see this together. So the first thing we see in this passage is we see a warning against the anti-gospel of spiritual achievement. Paul gives us a warning against this anti-gospel of spiritual achievement. He says in verse one, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ and who put no confidence in the flesh. As we come to this part of the text, if you've been with us on this journey in the book of Philippians, or if you've just uh, read the book until this point, you'll notice that there's a pretty significant shift in tone, where, you know, rejoice in the Lord, also watch out for those mutilators of the flesh, and you're like, whoa, what, what tripped inside of Paul right here? There's sort of this noticeable shift in tone, and it just should cause us to ask the question, okay, what is he all hot and bothered about? What is it about this group of people? Who is it in, in the first place that he's calling the mutilators of the flesh, these evildoers, these, uh, the dogs? Who's he even referring to and what is it that they're doing or teaching that is so bad that he would have that response to them? Well, essentially what Paul is doing here is he is warning us against what these false teachers are pushing on the church in Philippi. He doesn't give us, uh, he, he doesn't, explicitly name the group of people that he's talking about, but most commentators would agree that he's talking about a group of people uh, that were known in the first century as the Judaizers. The Judaizers were first century Jews who accepted Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. Okay? And we just have to recognize that this was most of the early church for those first years, was that it was people who were Jewish, who were thoroughly enculturated in the customs and the practices of the Jewish faith and followed the Old Testament law of Moses and all of God's instruction that was given to them throughout the Old Testament, this is most of the people who became followers of Jesus in those early years already had that Jewish background and heritage. And then as the gospel began to go forward, as the Jesus movement spread beyond those who were sort of ethnically, culturally Jewish to those who were Gentiles, there became a very important question. The question is, If someone grew up as a Gentile, meaning that they had none of the cultural assumptions, they had none of the look or the feel of a Jewish person, if they they were sort of an outsider in that way, did they have to become Jewish in order to follow Jesus? In other words, 
was someone who was a new covenant Gentile follower of Jesus, were they also expected to follow the old covenant law of Moses? And that was one of the major questions that arose in those first years of the church. And the Judaizers were a group of people that said, yes, you need to follow Jesus. You must accept Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. And you must also do these other things. Yes, you must follow Jesus. And you must also obey the Old Testament law of Moses. So practicing things like uh, circumcision, things like the Jewish food laws, things uh, like the festivals and the holidays and the celebrations. Yes, you must follow Jesus. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And if you are really going to consider yourself a member of God's people, you must also do all of these other things. And that was essentially the message that they were teaching was Jesus and. Yes, you must follow Jesus and To really be on the inside, you must also do all of these other things. There must be all of this very specific-looking fruitfulness to your life as a disciple of Jesus if you are going to really consider yourself to be on the inside. So this was who Paul is referring to here. And Paul uses such strong language here because Jesus and is an anti-gospel. Jesus and anything is not good news at all. Now, I think it's important for us to realize that by adding these customs, by adding these practices, by saying, yes, you must follow Jesus and you must also do these other things, the Judaizers were not setting out to earn their salvation. Okay, when we as, as especially modern evangelicals think about the word legalism, the phrase that comes to our mind is works righteousness. They're earning their salvation. That's not at all what these Judaizers had set out to do. In fact, The Judaizers, if you were to ask them, would say, we are trying to be faithful to God. We are expecting much from those who would consider themselves to be a follower of Jesus. You can't just claim to be his follower and and not obey the Old, Old Testament that God had given us. They expected this not because they were trying to earn their salvation, but because they were trying to be faithful to God. But the thing was, over time, all of the ands, Jesus and circumcision, Jesus and food laws, Jesus and these customs, these practices. Over time, all of the ands began to replace Jesus as the source of their hope and confidence. They did not set out to be legalists. Basically, no one sets out to be a legalist, okay? No one wakes up and says, you know what? Today, I want to become more judgmental. Today, I want to become more sort of suspicious of other people. Today, I want to be the kind of person that increasingly, increasingly looks down on other people who are different than me. No one sets out to be a legalist, and these Judaizers did not set out on that purpose of trying to earn their salvation, but over time, these things began to be woven into their very identity as, as Jesus followers to the point where those things became as important to them as Jesus. And that is where Paul draws the line and says, Jesus and is an anti-gospel because you have, even if you didn't set out to do it on purpose, you have elevated something to to being as important to you as Jesus himself. And so what he tells us is that essentially that their trust in Jesus had kind of devolved into a kind of trust in their own spiritual achievements. Yes, Jesus, but all these other things that we can look at and say, I do these things. Therefore, I know that I have confidence in God because I do all these things. 
it had devolved into a kind of spiritual achievement. Now, as I mentioned, I think because we define legalism as works righteousness, most of us would tend to read a passage like this and kind of just skim over it to the next one because we're like, you know, as good evangelicals, we're not trying to earn our salvation. As good evangelicals, like, we're all about Jesus. And we would think that, you know, this sort of thing has, this really doesn't have anything to do with me. The, the Jesus and anti-gospel is also a temptation for us as well. In very different ways than it was for them, but it is no less a temptation for us as well. So it, it would look a, a lot different in our specific context than it would in theirs. And we, might, we may not use language that they would use. But we see this crop up any time that you would think to yourself or say out loud or hear somebody say anything that even remotely resembles this. If this person really were a follower of Jesus, they would fill in the blank. If this person really was a follower of Jesus, they would, and you can insert, you know, they would care about this ministry or that ministry that I'm really passionate about. They would, they would care about mercy ministry and ministry to the poor. They would care about immigrants. They would care about, they, they would be, you know, really interested in small groups. They would be interested in this particular form or brand of ministry. You know, if someone really was a follower of Jesus, they would, they would really care about these things. It may be that there are certain spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices that we have that have been really meaningful to us. I mean, I think of my own life and the time that I've spent, uh, sort of the rhythms that I have for spending time in scripture and in prayer, and I think those are really meaningful. Those are so valuable and sort of non-essential for me being like a functional human being. And we can look at those spiritual disciplines and say, okay, you know, if someone really did care about Jesus, if they really were a follower of Jesus, they would you know, fill in the blank with, you know, they would do this kind of Bible study or they would pray this much or they would give this much or, you know, they, they would certainly do more than they're doing now. One of the ways we see it in our sort of political sphere is, you know, you can, you can flip this the other way and, and say, you know, on the one hand, it's, you know, if someone was a follower of Jesus, they would fill in the blank. You can also flip that and, you know, how can someone call themselves a follower of Jesus and vote for a Democrat, or vote for a Republican, or that Democrat, or that Republican. And all of a sudden, these things that are complex issues that require so much thoughtfulness, and wisdom, and nuance, and prayer, and, and discernment from the Spirit get reduced to, do you vote for this person or that person? And that can be used as a way of saying, you know, if this person really was a follower of Jesus, they would, they would, they would get on board, and they would you know, vote for this person or that person. And it's in, in these ways, and, and many, many more, we can sort of see this thing uh, existing inside of us in our modern context as well. If someone really was a follower of Jesus, they would do this. How can someone call themselves a follower of Jesus and do this? And it's in those moments that, that, that Jesus and anti-gospel, it sort of pokes its head up inside of us. And what Paul is saying here to these believers in the church of Philippi, is he's saying, wherever you see this anti-gospel of Jesus and, you must kill it. Every place inside of your own life, every place inside of your church family where you see anything that looks like, yes, you have to follow Jesus, but also you really have to do this, it's, 
It's essential. It's non-negotiable. Anytime you see the Jesus and anti-gospel, you must kill it because it will kill you. Now, we all know that this does not mean that we can just do whatever we want, okay? <laughs> we all understand that. So please don't email me and say, he said that it doesn't matter about this or about that thing. No, it matters, okay? But wherever we see the anti-gospel of Jesus plus something, we must kill it. And so we see this warning from Paul of, against the anti-gospel of spiritual achievement. But then the second part of the text is we see him giving us an invitation. And it's an invitation to give up everything in order to gain Christ. So Paul extends this invitation to us by sort of drawing us into his, uh, his conversion story. And this isn't as much his sort of uh, biographical story. You know, he, you can read the book of Acts and hear about the circumstances that led him to become a follower of Jesus. What he's doing in this passage is he's showing us something of his uh, sort of theological conversion, show, showing us something of his, uh, his conversion of beliefs. And here's what he says. He's talking about putting confidence in the flesh. That is looking to spiritual achievement as a source of knowing that you are okay with God. And he says, we put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for such confidence. Continuing in verse four. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So Paul gives us his resume here and essentially says, here are all of the things that were advantages to me. And you'll notice some of those are things that he had no control over. They're things that were inherited. <laughs> okay, he, he didn't ask to be born in the tribe of Benjamin. He didn't have a choice whether he was circumcised on the eighth day or not. Okay? But then there's other parts of this where those are things that he achieved, things that he accomplished, things that he can say, no, I became a Pharisee. I became so zealous for what I believed that I killed Christians. So there's both the things that were inherited as well as those things that he, was, uh, that he chose to do that were achievements. And he's basically just laying these things all out here saying, here's a list of everything that I could consider to be a spiritual advantage. Everything I would consider to be my spiritual achievements, my spiritual accomplishments. Interestingly, he gives us, does anybody know how many different qualifications that he lists here off the top of your head? Total Bible nerd thing. We see seven. Paul could have given us more than seven. He could have given us less than seven. But as a good Hebrew way of thinking, a good Hebrew thinker, he gave seven because seven in the Hebrew way of thinking is a number for completion and perfection. So he gives us this list of things and essentially says to them, you will not find someone who has a better spiritual resume than me. You will not find someone who can claim they have more impressive spiritual accomplishments than me. And of course, he doesn't hold these things up to them to say, look at how great I am. Look at all these cool things I achieved and accomplished. No, he brings these things up in order to say to them, these things gained me nothing before God. These gave me no advantage whatsoever standing before God 
they gained me nothing. And if, and if these things gained me nothing, if my spiritual achievements, which are far more numerous and far more impressive than yours, Philippian church, if my spiritual achievements gained me nothing, do you think yours are going to gain you anything before God either? The point is clear. Paul has the most impressive spiritual achievement resume you can find. But then look at how he talks about, look at how he views these accomplishments. Verse 7, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So essentially here, what he tells us is that his spiritual achievements got demoted. His spiritual achievements and his accomplishments got demoted. Now again, I don't think that Paul, if you were to ask him, would ever say that works righteousness or earning my salvation was anywhere in his mind. And yet what Paul describes here is how those things became so ingrained into the fiber of his being that they became the source of his confidence in God. He could look at it and say, look at my lineage, look at my accomplishments, look at my heritage, look at all these things I have going for me. He didn't set out to be a legalist, but over time these things became so interwoven into his identity that they became the source of his confidence in God. And so he says, I consider them worth losing. They are garbage to me. The things that he thought were assets. He now says, I have found something far better to give my life to. I found something far better to build my life on. And all these accomplishments, all these things that I could look to to prove how spiritual I am, how devoted to God I am, all those things that would become spiritual achievements to me, he says, those things are now expendable to me. Those are things that are a small price to pay to gain Christ. Notice the language he uses here. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I wonder if Paul here, in the back of his mind, has one of the parables of Jesus. In the book of Matthew, chapter 13, there's this little one-liner that Jesus has, where he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. So you get the picture of this guy finds this buried treasure in a field and realizes this treasure that I now have in front of me is worth far more than everything I own. Why in the world would I not go home and sell everything I can sell in order to buy that field to gain that treasure? Because the treasure is so much more valuable than everything I have. This is exactly what Paul is saying here. 
He's looking at his spiritual achievements, his spiritual accomplishments. He's looking to the supreme value and the worth of Jesus. And he's saying, everything that I have is worth giving up, is expendable to me. I'm glad to give it up if only I can gain Christ. Now notice what he says here. I consider everything a loss. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Because of the surpassing worth and the value of Jesus, Paul says, my achievements, I consider them garbage. That's a word that I'm not going to translate into English vernacular, but it's a word that means garbage. It means feces. This is literally things you would scoop up and throw into the garbage dump and light on fire. Paul says, all of the spiritual achievements, all of my accomplishments are like that. They're compared to that. They're worthless. They're nothing. In fact, he says they're not just neutral. They are a loss. Now, I think what he's doing here is he's not only saying, in comparison to the worth and the value of Jesus, all of my spiritual accomplishments are essentially nothing. Sure, there is, a, there is an aspect here of comparison. We're saying Jesus is so much more valuable. He's worth giving everything to gain. But also he tells us that considering our spiritual achievements garbage, that is precisely how we gain Christ. Notice what he says. I consider them garbage. That. The word means so that. I may gain Christ and be found in him. So we gain Christ by considering, by comparing them and considering them garbage. That's what Paul is saying here. We gain Christ when we have the humility to recognize that all of our spiritual achievements, all of our other life achievements, all of our other life accomplishments, all of the things that we would look to as sources of identity and meaning and purpose to to prove that we're somebody, when we have the humility to recognize that those are, as Paul would say here, garbage, refuse. As the prophet Isaiah would say, filthy rags, dirty rags before God. It's when we have the humility to recognize, to consider all of our spiritual achievements as garbage, that's precisely how we gain Christ. And so friends, I want to urge you this morning, I want to urge you to believe the good news that Jesus is worth losing everything to get. Gaining Christ will simultaneously cost you absolutely nothing and absolutely everything. Gaining Christ costs you nothing in that you come to him with nothing more than the hot mess you are. I come to him with nothing more than the hot mess I am. And all of the brokenness and the idolatry and the sin that exists inside of me, we bring that to God and we say, here, please help And God pours his mercy out on us. He pours his compassion and his grace out on us in measures that we can't even begin to fathom. It costs us nothing. The gift of God is a gift. It's free. It doesn't cost us anything. We don't earn it. We don't do anything to contribute to it. We don't meet God halfway. We bring him nothing. Our hands are empty of anything we could give to to make amends, of anything we could give to prove that we're worth saving, we come to him with nothing and it costs us nothing. And at the very same time, it costs us absolutely everything. Because what it costs us 
is all of the things that we look to as spiritual achievements. All the things that we look to to say, you know, I've got this going for me, and I've got this going for me, and man, God would really like to have me on his team knowing that I have this skill set and this asset. The kingdom of God could really use me. We gain Christ when we give all of those things up. It costs us everything. It costs us all the things that we look to outside of our spiritual achievements even to be our source of meaning and purpose and identity and significance and value, the things we look to to gain reputation, to demonstrate that we are somebody. It costs us giving up all of those things. And we're glad to do it because of the value of Jesus. It's not a one-time experience either. The dying to ourself and the considering everything garbage so that we may gain Christ, giving up everything to gain Christ is not a one-time event that happens when you first trust Jesus. Giving up everything in order to gain Christ is a daily experience of dying to yourself and considering Jesus more valuable than all sorts of things. You know, you can look at your life and say, you know, I could have a certain lifestyle. I could have a certain standard of income, standard of living. There are certain possessions that I could have, certain, you know, luxuries, conveniences, you know, comforts that are things that, you know, I don't really need it, but boy, it sure is nice. There's all kinds of things that I could have, and yet I, I look at things and I know that if I, I know that I can't love Jesus and love money at the same time. And so I'm willing to say, you know, nuts to my standard of living, Jesus was so generous with me. And so I'm going to live my life demonstrating the generosity. And so I'm going to willingly lower my standard of income so that I can give more money away. That's a dying to ourselves. That's a, a choosing to, to, to view and to value the money and the possessions and things like that is, that's expendable for the sake of knowing Christ and following him. You know, we could look at our lives and say, you know, there's, um, I could go out and I could spend a lot of energy to, to build my reputation, to build my brand, as it were, to, to build a name for myself, to accumulate success for myself, uh, to gain a bigger following, to gain a bigger platform, to have more followers. I could do that. And yet I know that in Jesus, God has given me the identity. He's given me the name. He's given me the affirmation that my heart most desperately longs for. And so I can die to needing to have more Instagram followers so that I can gain Christ. And can we all agree that that's a pretty good trade-off? <laughs> At the end of the day, uh, I'm probably not as good as I think anyway, so you just, you just look at it and say, you know, I, I could try and gain more followers, but I'm just not that good. Why would I choose to live that way? I'm going to choose to give it up so that, I can, so that I can have Christ. Paul considers here. He says, I consider everything as garbage, everything worth loss that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul says, I, I, I consider everything worth losing so that I may gain Christ. This is the same exact word, the same exact verb that Paul uses just a few verses earlier when he says about Jesus. 
Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so what's motivating Paul, what is fueling his way of life, is that he recognizes Jesus did not consider equality with God, his divine status, something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he gave up everything in order to gain us. As Peter says, through the work of Jesus, in the book of 1 Peter, he says, we are God's treasured possession. And so Paul looks at it and says, okay, we have this example in Jesus of he willingly suffered, willingly gave up everything in order to make us his own. How can I not look at that and have a response of giving up everything in order to gain Christ, in order to make him my own? That's what's motivating Paul. That's what's, that's what's behind all of this. Is he sees the, the surpassing value, the worth of Christ. He sees what Jesus has done for him. And this is the only response that makes any sense is to give up everything in order to follow him. And so we see this laid out here in the example of Paul, and we also are invited to come and to give everything up in order to gain Christ. As we come to the communion table today, we do so, as we do each weekend, we're reminded of the value of Jesus. We're reminded of the the lengths to which God went to make us his own to bring us into his family. And so we get to come forward this morning and in doing so, we come out of our seats and we receive Christ and it's an act of humility. Recognizing that we need to receive him. We need to be nourished by him. We need the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus that was given for us. It's an act of humility and it's also an act of of, of immeasurable value seeing that God himself gave his son Jesus to suffer and to die for us. And so we get to receive with gladness and with joy the most valuable thing that has ever been given. We get to come in humility and all it takes is our humility to come and receive that gift. And so we do so here this morning. As we come to the communion table, let me invite you to take just a few moments of silent confession and reflection. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, and in deed by the things that we have done as well as by the things that we have left undone. We confess, Lord, that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, today we're reminded of all the ways that we have intentionally or unintentionally devalued your son Jesus. 
by the ways that we have lived, the things we've done and things we've not done, Lord, we in so many ways have, have chosen by the way we spend our time, by the way we spend our money, by the way we interact with others, we have chosen to treasure and to value something else. And Lord, we come and we confess that sin to you. And we, we look at the beautiful gift of your son, we see the treasure that he is, the surpassing worth, the surpassing value of knowing Jesus and being known by him. And Lord, as we think about that in comparison to the, the things that we've looked to as our source of identity, the things that we've looked to and treasured, they seem so pathetic. They seem so worthless. And in a way, they are. And so God, forgive us for the ways that we have looked to other things, to people, to possessions, and treasured them more than we treasure you. In your mercy, Lord, we ask that you would forgive what we have been, that you would help us amend what we are, and that you would direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And all God's people said, amen.